Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. What we are as a nation and what we stand for is a legitimate issue for the voice of the church to be heard. And that voice must carry to the faithless as well as the faithful. But if it's to deliver its message, the church can't ignore its own problems. I won't trespass on this occasion upon matters of conscience, but only on practical issues. Many parishes face financial challenges. And there's a doubt about whether a nationwide parochial system can be sustained. It is, of course, a Herculean task. The Church of England, with its cathedrals and its parish churches, is responsible for a very large part of our architectural and cultural heritage, including no less than 45% of all Grade 1 listed buildings. The lion's share of that cost, the cost of maintaining this huge community asset, falls on the diminishing number of regular worshippers. This is both unjust and, in the longer term, unsustainable. Some argue that it may be necessary to close churches, reduce the number of stipendiary clergy and sell assets. I do hope not. It would be a grim outlook. And I hope Christians will rally to prevent it. Churches are not only part of our lives, they're also a very important part of our landscape. If lost, we would all be the poorer. And by we, I don't only mean churchgoers, I mean everyone. I live in Eastern England, and John Betjeman's famous lines come to mind. What would you be, you wide East Anglian sky, without church towers to recognize you by? Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, the church is always there when needed. And it is, it seems to me, more than simply a place of worship. It's where we may seek the comfort of community, of companionship, of solace, and of sanctuary. Often silently, perhaps even subliminally, the church is a guide to our lives and our conscience. We should be grateful for that and do everything we can to protect its place in our society. Let me now turn to the future of our country. And first, I think it might be worthwhile to set out some context. We are an island geographically, but in no other way. Our lives are interconnected with and affected by the wider world. We have alliances for security and trade deals for economic welfare. At the moment, our world is not in a state of grace. Not every nation is led by men and women of good intent. Democracy has fallen back. Freedom, or indeed freedom of religion, has not grown and spread as we would have wished. We live in uncertain times, times in which if good men are complacent, bad men will take advantage. In countries where democracy is absent or weak or merely under strain, nationalist and populist sentiment has taken root and has grown. I don't like 
populism. Populism is self-interested and can be unscrupulous. It makes promises that can't be kept, creates division, scapegoats minorities, and controls or threatens or undermines the judiciary itself. Populist leaders favor obedience over ability. Acolytes and sycophants are rewarded. Dissenters are abused and, where possible, crushed. And the electoral system, if it seems likely to be necessary, the electoral system itself is perverted. All this is a corruption of a free society. And even the strongest of democracies must guard against it. In our country, we view authoritarian governments with distaste and implicit rejection. They are alien to our way of life and alien to our instincts for freedom. But not everyone in our world feels the same. There are many who have a quite different view. In England, in 1763, Lord Chancellor Henley said, and I quote, if a man steps foot in England, he is a free man. Today, under the pressure of numbers, if that man is a refugee in a rubber boat, he receives a chilly welcome and the threat of deportation to Rwanda. I cannot believe that is the right way forward. Such a policy is not a moral advance, and I hope that the government will look again at this policy. We need a policy that is Europe-wide, to contain people smuggling and to help the miserable and unfortunate victims of this trade. I do understand and sympathize with the government's difficulties, which are very real. But however you look at this policy, it is wrong. Wrong to forcibly transport people to a faraway land when all that most are seeking is a better life. That, after all, is what everybody here today would seek for themselves and their own families. So I hope in their own interests, the whole cabinet will reject this policy. If they do not, they will stain not only their own reputations, but that of the entire government, and most important of all, of our country for a very long time. Our shortcomings may be far less than others, but pragmatic self-interest tells us we cannot simply ignore autocracies on arms control, on climate change, on counter-terrorism. Democracies and autocracies must work together or we will all lose. The more we divide into tribes, the more likely it is that we will end up coming to blows. 30 years ago, we glimpsed a better world, the Soviet Union. An autocracy and dictatorship imploded. Germany was reunited. Apartheid was ended. Democracy spread right across Eastern Europe. The liberal order appeared to be dominant. It looked in those days as though our values of democracy, of freedom of thought and deed, had won the battle of ideas and that our way of life would become accepted as the general ideal. It was a time of hope. We were naive, complacent, horribly wrong. We forgot the human capacity for folly.
We see that now vividly, day after day, taking place in Ukraine. Freedom needs eternal vigilance. Democracy has to be protected. If it is not, it can be overwhelmed, value by value, freedom by freedom, country by country. In the United Kingdom, two block-busting events will affect our future. I refer, of course, to Brexit and COVID. Brexit has not presented Britain's best face to the world. It's our modern-day break with Rome, in this instance, the Treaty of Rome, and it will take years for all the implications to become apparent. Some will be positive. Far more, I believe, will not. Some applaud Brexit for reasons of democracy and sovereignty. Others deplore it on economic and social grounds. The debate was rancorous and factually dubious. Brexit divided our four nations and our politics, as well as family from family and friend from friend. If Scotland and Ireland secede from the United Kingdom, Brexit must bear its own part of the blame for that schism. The severity of COVID was surpassed only by Spanish flu a century ago. It seems a long time for it to come back. Like Brexit, COVID was enormously expensive. I have made no secret that I believe that leaving the European Union will, indeed has already, weakened our country and damaged our future. But I am a realist. It may not be conceivable to re-enter the European Union should our country wish to do so for many years. An early attempt to do so would surely fail and worsen the ruptures in our national political system. Nor could we rejoin upon the favorable terms that we once enjoyed. But attitudes to Europe may change. They may change when today's young, in due time, govern our nation. All the evidence suggests the young are overwhelmingly pro-European. If the promised benefits of leaving continue to be elusive, if not all but invisible, their resolve to rejoin may be strengthened. Until then, we must try and restore links with our neighbors where it is sensible to do so, and otherwise live with the consequences of our referendum decision. Brexit is emphatically not done. The effects of breaking away from the richest free trade market in history will seep out year upon year for a very long time. As for COVID, the government acted boldly in setting up furlough payments and swiftly to ensure the vaccine rollout. But there remain valid questions to be answered about advice to the public, about wasteful expenditure, about a lack of control over fraud, about the decision to transfer elderly patients from hospital to care homes, and the slipshod manner of awarding COVID-related contracts. A public inquiry has been promised and should not be delayed. At the very least, our country deserves an interim report within the term of this parliament. Between them, Brexit and COVID have driven our national debt to previously unthought of heights. The cost of COVID is estimated as equivalent to one quarter of the total cost of the Second World War. Over time, estimates suggest the cost of Brexit 
could be higher yet. It took decades, literally, to repay the debts of war, and it will take many, many years to repay the cost of Brexit and COVID. And this raises an unwelcome question. How can we pay for future policy ambitions? Demography ensures that the mega budgets, health, education, social care, will increase year on year. Our national security requires that the cost of defense is going to rise too. So also will the costs of climate change and the plans to level up communities in an effort to end historic injustices. Some people deny the existence of climate change with exactly the same fervor with which our predecessors once insisted that the earth was flat. But the evidence can't be put aside. Sea levels are rising on over 70% of the Earth's surface. Storms, hurricanes, floods are increasing in number and in severity. The Arctic, the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. Across the whole globe, the weather is freakily unpredictable. We are losing whole species of plants, animals, insects. We all know the litany, and I needn't spell out any more of it. Can we ignore all this? No. Can any one nation alone overcome this? No again. Dare we leave this for the next generation? No, yet again. It would be wrong in principle, and in any event, it may by then be too late and the burden too great. And nor can leveling up our communities be ignored. There are serious inequalities in our United Kingdom that have built up over many decades. For many years, governments comforted themselves that if our country as a whole was doing well, the wealth would trickle down from those at the top to lift up the poorest. Well, it hasn't happened. It hasn't done so. Of course, there have been improvements, but not enough, not nearly enough. In times of austerity, we are told that we, I quote, we are all in it together. If so, then logic suggests we should all be in it together in times of prosperity as well. I hope the government will seek to devise a policy that encourages trickle-down and shares national growth more fairly in the future than it has been shared in the past. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not favoring some bash the rich policy. Wealth in our country is important to us all. We should welcome investors and innovators as job creators, as philanthropists, as taxpayers. But as a nation, once the wealth is built, we need to be fairer in distributing the fruits of national growth. You'll all remember the key workers for whom we stood applauding on our doorsteps during the COVID crisis. They were mostly poorly paid. There was no trickle down to them, and yet it was they upon whom so many of us depended in a crisis. Our values need a bit of leveling up as well as our communities. But we must be realistic. Leveling up is the right policy, beyond a doubt, but it will take many parliaments to complete and will only succeed if future governments buy into the concept 
and the costs. How can all this be paid for? There are options. It could, over time, be met by above average growth in our economy. That is possible, but we cannot rely upon that. If growth is insufficient, which experience suggests is probable, the cost can only be met by higher taxes or more borrowing or cuts in other budgets. It's an unwelcome truth that lower taxes for everyone and higher spending do not readily go together. Hard choices must be made. And some hard choices must be made without delay as inflation rises, especially on food and on fuel, while growth falls and stagflation threatens, as it does at the present time. Many people will be utter and utterly unable to meet the bills that lie ahead. Help must come, and I hope that it will come soon. As it does, it may help to bring trust and respect back to our politics. Electors must have trust in the state, the government, and the independence and impartiality of the law. But if the nation is to be loyal to the state, the state must be loyal to the people. And that is why the provision of quality public services is so important. Everyone needs to believe that the state cares about them and not just the interests of the powerful, the motivators, and the elite. If the streets are unsafe, do the people who live in them believe the state is invested in them? If the weak last longer than the money, do the penniless believe the state cares about them? If children attend a poor school with disillusioned teachers, do the children or the teachers feel protected and valued by the state? It is important that they should do so. In our democracy, we rely upon one another in nearly every aspect of our lives. We need to respect and protect those with whom we share a common dependence. There is much that is good in our way of life that no previous generation has enjoyed. Personally, I know of nowhere else in the world I have traveled frequently for many, many years. I know of nowhere else in the world where I would prefer to live than in my own country. Every day, every single day, medical science is improving treatments of cancer and blood diseases. New knees and new hips can help those crippled with pain. The cure of cataracts can restore sight. Help is on the horizon for sufferers of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Not an outright cure, perhaps, but an ability to diagnose them early and stop them in their tracks. We are not short of good Samaritans in our society. The caring professions do not walk by on the other side, nor do the millions who work for charities or volunteer for them or donate to them. There is hope in two irresistible social changes. The rise of women to prominence in nearly every field of endeavor is as staggering as it is overdue. We are at last utilizing the skills of half our nation that were hidden away for far too long. It's odd, isn't it? Throughout the ages, men have trusted our most treasured possessions, our children, to women. But we have not trusted women to contribute more widely to society and at times have positively prevented them from doing so. Yet they bring a moderating and restraining force, generally, to a world 
that is in need of those attributes. There's another human influence I wish to mention as an overall force for good. And I refer to the young. They have grown up in a different world to their elders. They think differently. They are unburdened by the old shibboleths that have so framed the lives of those of you of my generation and generations quite close to mine. We may be wary of their music. We may not be entirely in favor of their dress down style. Their habit of cutting holes in the knees of new jeans for the sake of fashion. I've no doubt that past generations baffled their parents in similar ways. But the legacy we leave our young includes problems. But from all I've seen, this is a good generation. I have high hopes for them. I have enough confidence to believe that however much longer I may live, my country will be in good hands with our young. And beyond that, for me as a Christian, the greatest consolation is that one day I may be in even better hands still. Both our country and our church are more precious to our very being than most acknowledge or realize. Are they different now than in the past? I think they are. Will they be different in the future? Of course they will. For as the world around us changes, so too will they. But our country and our church are eternal. And my hope is they will remain shining beacons of goodness and decency in a world that at this moment is badly in need of both. Thank you all very much. listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more